One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It is, of course, the place to be for the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. This morning, uh, we've got a brilliant array of guests for you. We've got Frank Ferradi, author and sociologist. We've got Laura Dodsworth, author, uh, journalist and, of course, uh, independent woman. She's got loads to say to us. Uh, Richard Tice is here as well. He's going to give us the lowdown on why the European Union are absolutely hell-bent on making the migrant crisis worse. What they don't want to do uh, is allow Britain to repatriate any of the those uh, poor lost souls who claim to have been fleeing from the dangers of France, Spain, Germany, Italy, Belgium, Holland, the Netherlands even, uh, and all points east of uh, basically Calais, uh, because it's not very nice there apparently, they have to seek refuge in Britain. Uh, the Vimy Stockholm is back in the news of course as well. The NHS is also uh, in the news, because not only have we just finished with the latest junior doctor strike, uh, but we're now hearing that 60% of patients at the busiest NHS trust have been stuck in the system for at least 18 weeks. And loads more people are waiting for cancer treatment than ever before. Also, we'll find out about the neo-colonialists, because colonialism is now being blamed for all manner of things. And then, of course, there's Donald Trump. Once again, yet another load of indictments handed down uh, by the democratically run, well, when I say democratically run, I should say Democrat run, uh, judiciary in the United States of America. This time, it's uh, Georgia's turn. The state of Georgia has uh, apparently charged Donald Trump with the most serious charges he's ever faced since the last most serious charges he's ever faced. We'll be bringing you uh, the latest on all of that. Also, of course, uh, we'll find out what on earth is going on in the world of net zero. Also, uh, Oliver Whitfield Mircic, our man uh, on the English Channel boat, is going to be reporting into us. He's been out and about this morning uh, seeing what he can see. He's had his telescope and his uh, trusty hat on uh, to see what's happening. Uh, I'll bet you 10 to a million dollars that basically there's an awful lot happening. Uh, We had yet another record number of migrants arriving over the course of the weekend. Why? Why? Because they can. Why? Because they know they won't be kicked out. Why? Because they know they'll be given a warm welcome by all those idiots from Care for Calais standing about with blankets and hats and, you know, welcoming uh, messages and hot water bottles and all the rest of it. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Uh, Never mind the big cat sighting in Staffordshire. If you see it, I want you to call me. There's a puma on the loose, according to the Daily Star. So if you see anything that looks a bit like a puma, you know what to do. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Let's get it on.
Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, the home of common sense, and no less. And not just because it comes from me, but because it comes from all of you as well. We've had quite uh, the last 24 hours, haven't we? Uh, Rishi Sunak, I think, is still over in California, enjoying his summer holidays. Keir Starmer's been up in Scotland, telling them all that uh, he wants to leave the European Union, he's never going to go back, and he's very happy with Brexit, uh, but that don't worry, he's going to fix everything else. Well, if you believe that, uh, I've got some swampland in Florida to sell you. But let's kick things off this morning with Professor Frank Paredi, author, sociologist, of course, as well, uh, because there's a new report which has been commandeered uh, by the Daily Mail in which health trust documents have revealed um, that it's not actually our fault that uh, the gender mix-ups are happening all over the place. It's not really our fault that men and women don't get along. It's not really our fault that adults can't make sense of the world. It's all the fault of, guess what, colonialism. Frank, a very good morning to you. Good morning. But you know, <laughs> it is our fault because we're responsible for colonialism. Well, and you might happened, be responsible for it. I don't take any responsibility for it at all. You don't. Well, neither do I. But the, uh, <laughs> the narrative is, is that if you are uh, a man, a heterosexual man, possibly white, over the age of 25, and if you can still move, then you are responsible for colonialism. Yeah. By definition, according to the National Health Service, you're also responsible for everything from global warming to patriarchy to uh, bad gender distinctions. And what they've done is they've created this fantasy story. It's a bit like a woke fairy tale where the evil uh, forces of colonialism, uh, in a sense, impregnate themselves into every possible problem and bear direct responsibility for it. And the tragedy is, is that the NHS, which is a very important institution, is now in the business of communicating these falsehoods and disorienting people who come to their classes and their seminars. And a health service has become something very, very different. The health service has become a, an agent of socialization rather than of mm. providing health care to people. I mean, I basically look upon the way that we run the country now uh, as a very malfunctioning country because we have, and I repeat this quite often, so forgive me if you've heard it before, a police service that doesn't like to arrest people and catch them for committing crime, um, a hospital service that doesn't really treat patients, a doctor's service that doesn't want to see patients, a border force that doesn't protect the borders, um, a, um, uh, what else can we have, um, uh, any number of other... You know, water companies that don't really provide you with water because they, they tell you there's a drought. You know, electricity companies that, that can't provide you with cheap electricity anymore. You know, we have a kind of railways that don't work. We have a system where nothing really does what it says on the tin anymore. Yes, it's a huge problem in a sense. It's a, a dysfunction because what we now have increasingly is a situation where the state itself is unable to get things done. Mm. And it's never been the case beforehand that you have a situation like this where, in a sense, uh, just about every dimension of our, our everyday life is dysfunctional. And you have uh, universities where students cannot get their degrees. You have hospitals where, essentially, they become temples that you've got to wait to be let into, sometimes wait years to get into. And as a result of that, uh, people do become demoralized and no longer trust anything because they know that when they're told that... Uh, just call this number and we'll deal with your complaint. You will be waiting hours and hours and hours before you listen, before a human voice listens to you. So under those circumstances, we need to take a reality check and ask why is it that our society is now run by institutions that are simply incapable of getting things done? They really are. 
But the way that it kind of infiltrates the NHS is perhaps the most insidious because I'm reading this piece today about this uh, investigation that's been done and it turns out that people who only occasionally present as women are now frequently allowed into female-only wards. Midwives are being warned that they can harm trans parents by describing them as mothers uh, and 999 operators have been told to ask emergency callers for their pronoun rather than risk misgendering them. Uh, in the case of an emergency. You know, I mean, this is actual harm being done uh, on a daily basis to people who are, are not well. Well, you know, if you basically uh, destroy the fundamentals of biological reality, and if the distinction between men and women now increasingly becomes uh, uh, seen as a fiction, no longer relevant, uh, then all kinds of problems will, will kind of kick in because mm. essentially the hospital becomes not a place where, as a woman, you can be treated as a woman or as a man as a man. Yeah. You now become part of this social experiment in which the uh, NHS, particularly its human resources departments, are zealously committed to. And in a sense, you become a, a, a two-bit player mm. in this political drama which the NHS is putting on for us. Absolutely. And it's interesting that colonialism is, is sort of getting the blame because I've been listening to various interviews over time reading pieces about what's going on on Maui. And Maui um, is a very interesting study in what's going on in American politics. And I don't know whether you've been able to take a chance to look at some of this stuff, but they're all basically, I mean, where the fire happened was in a, a part of Maui which tended to be occupied by the poorer, more indigenous people. The mega rich people like um, Oprah Winfrey and Jeff Bezos, who have got massive mansions there, they all seem to have remained untouched by the fire. And the accusation being made by the locals is that because of colonialism, because of the, uh, the sugar plantation magnates, because of historical kind of exploitation of Maui, somehow the fire caused the poorer people to suffer. Now, I don't know if that's true, but it's a very interesting narrative to be pushing kind of 200 years after it all changed. Well, you know, uh, most research shows that in every disaster, it's the poor that pay the price. Mm. If you're wealthy, you obviously do manage to uh, minimize the risk to your, 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 your livelihood or to your physical uh, existence. But uh, the idea that somehow colonialism, uh, which, ha you know, which has, what is, what is a something that has gone long by, which no longer exists and no longer dominates our lives, is still responsible for this disaster. Mm. Doesn't make any sense, but we have to remember that these days colonialism is held responsible for global warming. It's held responsible for global terrorism. It's literally held responsible for every negative aspects of our existence. So now you have this situation where instead of examining very, very carefully what happened in Hawaii, learning the lessons of what happened there that we could do something about, we in a sense have got to have this funny explanation where we go back in history and uh, overlook the fact that there are there are things that could have been done today, like have a proper warning system that didn't really work, which could have made a difference. Yeah. Don't blame colonialism. Blame the Hawaiian government and the Hawaiian institutions for not being up to the task of saving people's lives. Yeah, that is the problem, isn't it? And I mean, at the end of the day, you can blame all sorts of things, but actual, um, you know, adherence to, to sensible policy, which doesn't seem to have happened in, in Maui, and an awful lot, and I don't want to get wrapped up into the whole climate change argument, but an awful lot of the, the land use has changed to such an extent in places where these fires take place, that the fires do much more damage than they've ever done. Yes, and, and, and the question of land use is, is a really important issue, 
ensuring that we get the right kind of balance between uh, what kind of uh, productive activity mm. we put the land uh, to and the rest of rest of the communities. That can be done quite intelligently yeah. because we have a very sophisticated system of agrarian science and it just simply means we adhere to these rules. If we ignore them, then obviously there's going to be all kinds of problems from land erosion to fires to to, to just about anything. And it seems to me that we need to look at reality in the face uh, rather than find uh, always the same kind of excuses that it's patriarchy, it's uh, sexism, it's global warming, which is then caused by colonialism, uh, that is to blame. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, nothing that actually has happened could be the cause of, any, of anything at all. Frank, stay with us. We're going to talk about the West and the fallen nature of its political world, because political stagnation is very much a thing. We're also going to talk about sexism uh, in Cambridge. We're going to talk about uh, TikTok yobs and why they're now being warned to stop these rampages through shops uh, in our high streets in this country. Uh, this is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. More from Frank Ferreira and myself coming next. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We're talking to Frank Ferreira, Professor uh, of Sociology and author, of course, as well. Frank, you wrote a piece on your Substack this week about uh, the decline, if you like, of the um, uh, the West's politics. It turns out that it's in a state of stagnation, which I think is right. I mean, a bit like I was describing the, the sort of the services uh, in this country, which seem to be not very efficient. Our politics isn't very efficient either. We've got Rishi Sunak on one side kind of promising to do things and then not doing them. And Keir Starmer promising to do things without having the opportunity to not do them. I mean, that seems to be the choice, right? It is. And very often uh, politics, certainly from the uh, leading members of the parties, becomes an exercise in impression management. Mm. And what they seem to be concerned about is entirely the optics of how they're seen, uh, what kind of impression they can create in the public. So, for example, we're now in the middle of a big debate about this barge. Uh, which uh, one day had migrants on it, uh, uh, next day they were taken off because of public health concerns. But even if people had been put on the barge, it it really was uh, a public relations exercise because that's not going to solve the problem of migration. That's not going to do anything to really uh, break the back of this question. But instead of uh, acknowledging that there's a major problem here, you basically try to almost like displace attention by focusing on this one issue. So for weeks, we're going to be discussing whether or not it's right or legitimate to use a barge uh, on which migrants ex- uh, live and exist. Yeah. So, uh, what I've been writing about is that somehow politics is now running on empty. And increasingly, the arguments and the debates and the policies are really about second order matters. And the fundamental questions that really should concern us are never directly addressed. And certainly, you now know that when promises are made that we're going to fix the NHS or we're going to fix the housing crisis that we're confronted with, it's absolutely certain, without a doubt, that nothing is going to happen. Right. And now, this has been going on for a long, long, long time now. People, as a result of becoming less and less uh, trusting in government or, or politicians, and this creates a kind of stagnation where politics isn't really an, a, a, a public... Uh, event that's alive, that's dynamic, that's inspirational, but instead it's almost like we're passing yeah. time 
waiting for something to happen. Yes, and it means that expectations become ever lower. So people not only don't expect something to work, they just don't think anything will happen and it will be kind of politics as usual. Their lives will continue to go on regardless. I mean, I, I often say that back in the days when Tony Blair was in charge, he kind of bored everybody into submission. You know, he deliberately made politics boring. And I believe he did it so that we wouldn't really notice what he was actually doing, which was changing the face of Britain. You know, because people kind of disengaged from it. They went, well, there's not much difference between him and David Cameron. When Cameron and he were up at the dispatch boxes opposite each other, you're kind of going, well, this is the same guy. There's nothing to choose. So people just tuned out. And then suddenly they wake up 10 years later um, and the world is a very different place. It is very different because uh, decades after decade, now we had Tony Blair's, you know, sort of David Cameron's pretty much the same kind of person appearing in different suits. Uh, and as a result of that, as you're suggesting, we now have the lowering of expectations. And when you lower ex people's expectations, then what follows is that you become detached, you become passive. Sometimes you give up on anything mm. important happening. And that could be a, a real threat to democracy because democracy de actually depends on people thinking of themselves as being citizens. And what the, what's now happened, and this is the central argument that I'm putting forward, is that the governments, the different governments uh, that have been around, treat people not as citizens, but almost as if they're patients. So the government becomes uh, this big brother that looks after you, promises to take care of you, rather than uh, a government that's in the business of en engaging in a grown-up dialogue. Yes with members of the public. Right. But also requires of you to be um, supplicants in order for them to look after you, because if you don't do what they say, then they won't be responsible if you're not well or if something terrible happens to you. I mean, it's very reminiscent of sort of Stalinist Russia um, and the Chinese uh, government under Chairman Mao, isn't it? It is in one sense, but, but you know, uh, the Stalinist system uh, was very, very, very crude. Uh, people could see right through it after a while because it was so obvious. Whereas what we have now is not even necessarily a, a conscious project on the part of government, but rather you have uh, politicians who are simply uh, indifferent or simply uh, apathetic, who are not in the business of actually launching a project. But what they do is they basically follow the lines of least resistance, which means that they put themselves in situations where they can say, well, we weren't really responsible for this. It wasn't our fault. It was beyond our control. But yes, at the same time that all these things are not happening, what we are doing is looking after you and making sure uh, that we insulate you from all the risks that society is confronted with. Mm. We are here to be your big brothers uh, who are making sure that you're going to be well, whilst the one place that does make us well or can make us well, the NHS, isn't really up to the job at the moment. No, exactly right. And what are you making of, therefore, some of the fallout from this? Because if the grown-ups, if you want to call them that, have kind of lost faith in the system, what about the kids? You know, because we're seeing these TikTok kids now watching more and more social media videos, becoming more and more kind of um, enticed into activities as a, as, a, as a result of it. We've got these TikTok mobs, TikTok yobs, as they're being called, rampaging through London and probably other parts of the country, Manchester, Birmingham. You know, wherever there's a shopping centre, you're going to see these kids rampaging through, stealing whatever they want, steaming, they used to call it, you know, nicking stuff. Um, people now saying... Parents must take account of their own children. Well, that's all very well, but, you know, the genie's out the bottle here, isn't it? 
that's a, that's a very good way of putting it, because if the authority of the government is lost, then in, in invariably the authority of adults also becomes weaker, mm. and the authority of parents becomes almost non-existent. So right. crashes of authority leads to a situation where the young are, are, have no sense of restraint. Nobody's uh, guiding them, inspiring them, uh, helping them to make their way into adulthood. And that's why you have a situation where you have this antisocial behavior on the part of young people. You know, the young have always kicked up and rebelled, and there's nothing really wrong with that. Because, you know, as long as there are adults who are, in a sense, holding the line, giving them guidance, you know, telling them this cannot be done, there's no problem about the kids kicking up. The problem is when kids begin to kick up and there is nobody who is telling them this is not the way to behave and people look the other way and pretend that there is nothing wrong. And I think the tragedy is, is when you have a crisis of authority, then the way that people behave, the, the way that people interact with each other becomes unpredictable and very often becomes uh, fairly destructive. And mm. that potential for destructive behavior is now a very real issue within British society. It really is. And as far as that sort of particular phenomenon goes, then it'll just have to burn itself out, I suppose. So what would your um, advice be to the authorities? Would you say just let them do it? No, I think these things don't burn themselves out. They might, uh, you know, sort of go on, go downward a little bit and, and decrease in a, for a couple of days. But if you have a situation where you know that uh, you're, you're not under any kind of control, when you basically think that the police and various other agencies are going to look the other way, they're not going to make life difficult for you, uh, then basically you have an incentive to carry on in the old way. One of the things that I've been hearing quite a bit is whenever there is any kind of uh, public uh, pu public offense within, you know, on the streets or anywhere else, the behavior of the police, their main uh, slogan is, let's not escalate. And when they say, let's not escalate, what they really mean is, let's pretend this isn't really happening. Let's right. hope that it turns out. And of course, if you do that, then things will invariably escalate because there is no reason why people should stop and go home. No, there really isn't. That is a problem. But we shall see how it goes over the course of the summer. Um, got this from John. Mike, Frank is brilliant, but I do wonder how he's still got a bank account. Have you, you still got a bank account? I mean, personal question now, I'm afraid. You know, this is not a funny question because ever since I heard about, heard about all these uh, developments, I've become much more conscious of the fact that if you, have, uh, if you speak out and if you've got an independent opinion, then you do risk being uh, debanked. You do risk that various infrastructures yeah. will, uh, will create problems for you. Just this weekend, I talked to a woman who's got a big mouth, a big voice. You know, I really like her. And she's been told by her phone company to uh, basically stop speaking out the way she is. Because if she doesn't, then the phone company will cut her off and she'll have to find a different mobile provider. Right. So, you know, we now have a situation where isn't it? Yeah, these infrastructures are now behaving like uh, as if they are the government. They're behaving as if they got the right to determine what kind of political opinions we can, we can have. I mean, it really is quite extraordinary because I, I'm a bit like you. Every time, every every day, or whenever I look up my sort of banking app, I keep expecting to be blocked from getting access to it. I just, you know, every day I get into it, I'm kind of like another day. I've managed to get past it, you know. So it's 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 a state of play that we shouldn't have to be in. I'm afraid. But Frank, listen, thanks very much indeed, Professor Frank Ferrady, author and sociologist, there talking a great deal of sense as he always does uh, about the. Uh, 
malaise, I think, that you could say is affecting not only our, our country and our culture, but also our politics. What is it that's gone wrong? Perhaps you have the answer and you know what to do. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number. Coming up, we're going to be going live uh, down to the south coast. Oliver Whitfield Miacic, Talk TV's correspondent, has been out on the channel for us. Uh, he's going to give us his report. Coming next on Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. If you've only just joined us, well, welcome. Uh, you've missed the first half hour, but don't worry, I'll let you off. Uh, Roger has summed it up well. Uh, he says, Mike, oh dear, it's all my fault. I'm a heterosexual middle-aged white man who couldn't care less about net zero, pronouns, colonialism or climate change. And I don't support you, Les. Should I be locked up and have the key thrown away? No, I think you should be immediately made a, a prominent member uh, of the Independent Republic of Mike Graham because that is entirely what we are all about. Questioning, um, asking, being cynical, being sceptical, and yes, wondering whether or not what we're being told is actually the truth. Let's go right now live to Dover. Oliver Whitfield Mircic, the Talk TV's correspondent, he's been out on a boat on the channel this morning, very early doors. He's going to report in now to us what he saw. Oliver, a very good morning to you. Good morning to you, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. You were up with the Larks this morning. You're out and about very, very early. Tell us what happened. So we're out in the English Channel from about five o'clock this morning, really to gauge the situation out there, because we know, according to the Times newspaper, that there's been at least 100 people who made that crossing within the past 24 hours. Mm. Home office data on the small boats crossings has yet to be released to confirm that actual number, but we're expecting that in the next few hours. Basically, the weather conditions have started easing off here in Dover. Within the next 48 hours, they're expected that the winds will drop even further. The swell at sea will go from half a metre to, in some cases, being very, very still out on the water. And so we were out there to see whether we could see any of these dinghies that were out and about. Today, though, there was a larger than normal response from the French side. Four patrol vessels were out covering areas from Calais to Boulogne-sur-Mer all along that northern French coastline and we also saw a British plane up in the sky which has been uh, hired by the Home Office to basically look down with very powerful cameras and to scan the area to see what was coming. But what was interesting was what the skipper told us. He was following that tragedy on Saturday in which six people died, 58 people had to be rescued and one person is still missing after their dinghy capsized and then sunk in the English Channel. And he says there was a very big difference in the response times from the RNLI here from Dover compared to the French Coast Guard vessels which were also in the sea. Mm. The RNLI reportedly travelling at 24 knots as fast as it could, even though it was on the way back to Dover, having taken part in two previous rescue operations. Meanwhile, the French Coast Guards is now alleged to have only been skimming along at around 8 knots. The uh, skipper of our vessel saying that the French side could do more, and he says that some of the vessels that they have hired to carry out these patrols, one's from Denmark, there's another one's from a different nation, he says that those vessels are, in effect, assisting the migrants because what they're doing is they're escorting the vessels over to the territorial line where it becomes English territory, and so 
they're abetting these migrants instead of during that journey which is in some cases two to three hours long because they're going at very slow speed around five knots instead of intercepting the boats bringing the people on board and then returning them back to the French mainland. Yes. Well, this has been a criticism, hasn't it? Not only of that incident over the weekend, but, but regular incidents, because uh, we've seen cases whereby the people on a, on a dinghy asked for the British um, Navy to come and rescue them. They didn't want to be rescued by the French because they didn't want to be taken back. Similarly, um, we've got questions this morning about what the French are doing with all the money uh, that's been given to them by the British government. And similarly as well, since that accident, that dreadful accident did happen closer to French soil than British soil, I mean, why weren't they just taken back and rescued by the French and taken back to France where uh, they were only sort of eight miles away? So a number were taken back to France and then a number were taken here to the UK. I think it was around 22 people that the RNLI rescued and then brought them back to Dover. The others were then taken back to France. But there are big questions about how this all unfolds. And one of the things that the skipper mentioned to us was there's a tragedy at sea. The media report upon it. It then seems that the French side pick up their patrols. They seem to be more active. They've got people out on the beach, those police officers where all of this money goes to. But as soon as the media interest wanes off, it falls off the news agenda. That's when things start to get lax again. Now, we've reached out to the French Coast Guard to try to get a response, but so far have been unable to do that. After the incident had happened, they did put out a press release detailing the various steps that they had taken by sending out commercial vessels there, then enrolling their own vessels to go along and assist and getting in a helicopter nearer towards the end. But we are still waiting for those specific rebuttals is what we'd expect from what we've heard there from a skipper who's got to be said has got 25 years experience on these very waters. He knows them like the back of his hand and he really does see the day-to-day -day impact of what these migrant journeys are having. He's had to rescue them himself previously, four people, when their dinghy was completely flooded mm. with water. He sees the boats being brought over sometimes on a daily basis. And so for him, I suppose, it's quite frustrating that when the media are there to try to capture these moments, it's then just turned out fruitless today. But, you know, that's that's part of, of, of this story. Yeah. It's, there, it isn't a constant supply of people. It isn't a constant supply of these boats. It all depends on the weather, on how the people smugglers are operating, about how the uh, police operations, the rescue operations are all unfolding. Absolutely. Oliver, appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed. Oliver Whitfield, Mircic there, Talk TV's correspondent, live from Dover, uh, having spent some time on the water this morning, reporting that it is an absolute mess, complete and utter shambolic state of affairs in the channel, uh, where the RNLI are rescuing people who should be being rescued by the French. The French are not bothering to rescue them, so we do it instead. You know, it's absolutely utterly ridiculous. Richard Tice is going to join us at the top of the hour uh, to give us his view on what the European Union is saying, which is today that they're not going to be interested in doing any kind of deal to take any of these people back to the European mainland. That, I'm afraid, is yet another problem. Let's talk now, though, about the NHS. Uh, Martin Gower is here, uh, former NHS Trust Chair, of course. More bad news for the NHS in terms of the uh, figures that are coming out. Sick Brits are supposed to wait no longer than 18 weeks for routine treatment, but 60% of patients at some of the busiest NHS trusts have been stuck in the system for at least 18 weeks. Many people now going private because they just simply cannot afford to wait any longer. Martin, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, again. nice to talk to you too. I mean, it doesn't get any better, does it? I mean, we've just had the end of the um, 
the doctors' strike, uh, the four, latest four-day strike, where uh, routinely um, more and more uh, cancellations happen. We're now looking at something like over a million procedures cancelled as a result of the junior doctors and the consultants' strike. Um, I mean, they're never going to make any headway here, are they? I don't think the, the, the juvenile doctors are, no, nor the, nor the older ones. Mm. Um, I, it's really disappointing that, that that is happening because it looks like it's designed to inflict as much damage to the NHS as, as possible. Yes. And um, obviously the main, main point is to absolutely ensure that Rishi Sunak's target of, of cutting down the waiting list, it won't be achieved. Um, I mean, I, I've said all along that it's clearly politically motivated. I don't think by all the doctors themselves, but I think a lot of there's a there's a handful of them who are who are obviously um, strongly Labour supporting people who are associated with the BMA. But actually, I think that the BMA as an organisation has joined up with Mick Lynch and the other uh people who who want to undermine yeah. the government and that's what that's why people are suffering and getting on longer and longer waiting lists yes and what i'm saying i suppose is that all of these things um conspire to make those waiting lists longer um and conspire to prevent anybody from actually breaking the cycle because all we now see is the numbers going up and up and up yes um and I think it, it's pretty pretty rich of, of people like West Streeting to come on the media and say, well, it was wonderful under Labour, you know, the um, uh, the waiting lists were very low and we put all the funds in. Actually, when the, la the last Labour government came in, they didn't inherit a bankrupt country with a financial crisis on its hands that had to be dealt with, mm. and neither did they have a pandemic. Right. Um, in they, fact, also, they also had probably about 10 million fewer people living here. Absolutely, and they didn't have you know, hundreds of thousands of immigrants pouring into the country illegally. Yeah. So actually, it was a very, very different scenario. Mm. Uh, and, and let's not forget also that they wasted billions on an IT system that never actually worked yeah. either. No, exactly right. Yeah, I mean, the Labour Party, as you know, uh, Martin, are very good at reinventing their history and reinventing the past and pretending that something that did happen actually didn't happen. Um, I don't think anybody's got any hope that if they were to become the next government, that the striking workers wouldn't actually strike more. Because historically, and you and I remember it, you know, the unions get even more powerful during times of Labour government because they expect the Labour government to give in to them easier. Well, definitely. And if you want to see how well a Labour a Labour government will run the health system. Take a look at Wales. Yes. Um, it, I mean, it, I have absolutely first-hand experience of it with my own uh, mother and father-in-law and the disgraceful treatment they got in Wales. And also we have a, a relation in Wales, a, a first cousin of my wife, who has got appalling, appalling service from the NHS in Wales. And, it's, and I can understand why people are queuing up from Wales to, join, to come to England. Um, I mean, Mike, this is a patchy situation. These waiting lists are not common everywhere. Um, the 92% target isn't being achieved that much. But where I live in South Warwickshire, um, we're, we're in a pretty decent place. And when you consider it, the hospitals that were performing better are probably also taking some of the overload from the hospitals who are not performing that well. So, it, you know, it, 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 they, they could be in an even better position if they weren't having to bail out anybody else. The, the other thing about it all uh, is, is I think that, and I want to just be fair on the point, I think a lot of NHS trusts are pretty good at making sure that those with the most urgent need 
either because of their pain level or because of the 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 the, the, the criticality of their 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 prob their, their illness um they're pretty good at prioritizing who does get in more quickly yeah i mean that is the problem isn't it that you've got a sort of a bottleneck at every stage you know if you can get to see a gp well well done but it'll take you a few weeks if you can get then a referral to get you on to the next stage then well done uh, that could be a few more weeks and then if you get another referral that needs to be done at the end of the day unfortunately you run out of road and some people and i say this without any pride at all in our system um have called me and spoken to me that during covid because they couldn't see anyone um they've now got cancer which is inoperable Yes, and and that's absolutely awful. And, and it's COVID, unforgivable. It's worse. Reaction. It's worse than awful. It's unforgivable for a, for a, for a country that prides itself on on having what is described as the greatest healthcare system in the world. It's shameful, actually. And Mike, I feel for not only for those poor people who have who have now got maybe terminal cancer as a result of uh, not seeing the right people during lockdown. I feel for, I feel for their loved ones, their relations, their brothers, mm. sisters, wives, husbands. I mean, it, it's a really awful, awful position to be in. And of course, the other thing is that this uh, particular report that shows the, what the waiting list targets, how much they're being missed by. If you take take a look at mental health. And see the waiting lists there. Yeah. It 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 is an absolute nightmare. Oh. Um, so th there's a whole lot of things that are militating against the NHS performing. And I I, I think you know it's it's fine for for West Street and to talk about well of course it needs reform. Uh, it won't be reformed radically un, uh, if there was a Labour government. And actually, my big concern, Mike, is that because of the degree to which the NHS is run by, by politicians. I have this awful sense that it's just going to kind of bumble along. Yeah. I'm going to uh, leave you morally. with, um, due to, to my incredible number of sources, I'm going to leave you with one fact, which is at the moment unpublished, and I'm very pleased to be able to bring it to you for the first time here on my show. Um, according to um, a survey of hospital doctors, do you know that we now have actually more eligible hospital doctors working uh, than there were in 2013? The number is up by 49%. In 2013... The number was 52,874. It's now 78,742. Oh, yeah. Yes. So there are actually more doctors in the system now than there were 10 years ago. Yes, there are. Um, it is, there's a question, of course, about how many of those are actually working full time. Um, yes. But what I'm saying is, is that that's very rarely a stat mentioned by the BMA. Oh, n never. And indeed, they actually, the BMA actually at one time wanted to restrict the number of, of uh, places there mm. were in med schools in, in the UK for doctors because they thought if there were too many, it might dilute the, the quality of the service. Yes. And, and the government of that time actually agreed to that. Mm. I know. Extraordinary, isn't it? Too many doctors, eh? Uh, who would have thought that that would be bad for the NHS? Now they're saying they want more. Martin, good to talk to you. Thanks very much. We're out of time. Martin Gower, former NHS Trust Chair. We'll talk some more about those doctor numbers because I think it's a very significant thing. Coming up next, we'll talk about Donald Trump. We'll take your calls. This is Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham, the one place where you get the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We do not uh, coat it with sugar for you. Uh, we do not tell you something that isn't true. We do not, in fact, uh, ref refuse to give you the details. I was listening to a report on Trump this morning on what can only be described as the so-called state broadcaster. Uh, they didn't bother to mention the fact that with every one of these indictments that gets handed down, he actually becomes more and more popular and he goes up in the polls even further. And of course, they keep using the same words, don't they? 
These are the most serious charges that a president of the United States has ever faced. Well, since the last most serious charges that the president of the United States has ever faced, they've said it three times now. Uh, they said it after New York, uh, they said it after Florida, they said it after Washington, and now they're saying it after Georgia. Unbelievable. Racketeering? Seriously? Do me a favour. I mean, I know what they do in America, and I've seen what they do, and I know what racketeering is. It's what the Mafia do. It's not what former presidents do. Unbelievable. We're going to talk to Richard Tice this morning, leader of the Reform Party, and of course, Talk TV's very own uh, Sunday morning, uh, Sunday sermon specialist. Uh, you might say he's uh, the guru uh, of Sunday broadcasting, but he's not here this Sunday, I'm just told. Thank you for that. You've just ruined it. I mean, you know, Aaron, for heaven's sake. Richard Tice, very good morning to you. I mean, there uh, I am. Good morning to you. There I am good telling morning, them, telling you, telling the world that you are the guru of Sunday sermonising, and then he goes, he's not on this Sunday. I mean, well, even I very occasionally have to take a <laughs> uh, a Sunday off, Mike. But I can report from the Kent coast that the sunshine is glorious. I've actually been in the English Channel uh, this morning. One of the benefits of a little bit of warming is that uh, you know you don't need to go abroad. The English Channel is warm. No sign of any migrants right. where I am. Uh, a little bit too far east, I suspect. Yes. But, look, we've heard uh, this uh, this sort of nonsense being reported about the EU rejecting uh, the idea that we can return people. But this is old news. Yeah. Uh, it really is old news. The reality, Mike, is that what is required is something that doesn't exist within Westminster, and that is courageous, strong, bold leadership. Yeah. Because... I've said it before, and I'll say it until I'm absolutely blue in the face, that we can legally, under existing international treaties, that the French and the people in Brussels can do nothing about because they are written, they are in law, we can pick these people up, we can safely take them back to Dunkirk and to Calais and to the beaches of France and return them from whence they left. That is the safe it's the kind, it's the compassionate thing to do. It's the only thing that will actually stop the boats and stop the debts. And uh, we could do that. Um, here's my prediction, though, Mike. I think that this crisis is going to, to roll on. It's going to grow and grow. Mm. The fury of the British people will increase to such an intense tempo that actually, eventually, the Conservative government... Uh, or, sh or should I say, con-socialist, weak government, eventually they will actually listen to my advice mm. and they will start to do exactly what I say because that's the only thing that will stop it. And I don't think that the British people will put, put up with this through until the next general election. I don't think so either. But the problem is, Richard, as you know, that the entire sort of um, infrastructure around the migrant story uh, is pro-migrant. You know, you've got the RNLI steaming, as we just heard uh, Oliver Whitfield Mirchich, 24 knots, which is bloody fast on the boat on, a, on, on, a, on, on top of water. That's really quick. 24 knots rushing to the aid of, of the, the, the capsized migrants. Fair enough. But they're only somewhere between six and nine miles off the coast of France. Apparently, the French um, uh, um, rescue service was doing about eight knots, meandering towards them. And when they got to them, they picked up a few, but most of them were picked up by the RNLI and went the other sort of 25 miles in the opposite direction with the people who had capsized off the coast of France. Now, as long as you've got that going on, we're never going to take them back. It's, it, uh, it's actually worse than that. In my second Sunday sermon two days ago, I actually said that all of these vested interests, the vast majority of whom are making serious money, mm. serious cash, at our expense. 
But some of the people with blood on their hands are the French Navy captains who escort them to the midpoint in the channel when what they should be doing is they should be blocking them, they should be picking them up, and they should be taking them back to France. For heaven's sake, we're literally paying the salaries of all these people, the gendarmes and all the French military and and border authorities involved with this. We send them half a billion quid of our hard-earned cash, and all they do is transport them very nicely to the midpoint. Right. The whole thing's completely absurd. And let me ask you a question, because you'll remember these days. I mean, one of the reasons why channel crossings increased massively was because we were able to prevent people jumping on lorries. You know, the security was made better at Calais. You know, the various um, you know uh, methods of, of detecting people inside of lorries was made better. No human rights lawyers at that time said these people must have the right to jump in the back of a lorry and jump out of it somewhere on the A1 so that they can live a happy life somewhere in Lincolnshire. None of them did. So why are they suddenly now defending the right of these people to come here illegally by another means? A, because it's more visible, and B, because I think bluntly uh, the numbers have got so great and there's just more cash involved and there was a, a the huge illegal trade in the back of the lorries you could almost if that happened if that was going on to a large degree now you could hear them say oh it's inhumane for them to be in the back you better create a nice comfy seat for them to join up in right. the front of yeah, the just cab. get a coach uh, <laughs> just get a coach Look, the whole thing uh, i mean it drives us all absolutely nuts but I, I regret to say that this will not stop and for all those bleeding heart Ramona rejoiners banging on about the Dublin agreement and we left and that. Let me tell you the facts. The facts are that under the Dublin Convention, the EU sent us five times more people than we sent back to the EU. So that wasn't exactly helpful. And the number we used to send back was in, it was in the low hundreds. Mm. Uh, Whereas as we know, we're now receiving tens and tens of thousands every year. And we've got a backlog of give or take 170,000. Here's my other prediction this morning exclusively to you, Mike. That is that the uh, the backlog will grow to some 200,000 before the next general election. Mm. Just imagine that, 200,000. I mean, again, they've been telling us for so long and you'll still hear them. I mean, I saw somebody pop up on Talk TV uh, yesterday, some uh, bloke from Amnesty International talking about, oh, it's a very low number compared to the numbers of people that, that flood into uh, to, to Europe on an annual basis. Well, I'm not interested in how many people come to Europe. I'm interested in how many people come to Britain. You know, the idea is that we are a sovereign nation. Uh, we left the European Union for a reason. And the reason was so that we could determine how many people are allowed to come here. And this government is failing miserably at it. Completely. And here's the point. If Rishi Sunak showed the sort of bold, courageous leadership that I've just talked about and picked up and took the boats back to France. That sets a fantastic, stellar, global leading example of how to stop the boats. And then the leaders across the whole of the European Union could then say, yes, my word, he's right. Maybe that's what we should do in the Mediterranean. Let's pick them all up and take them back to North Africa. And guess what? The boats will stop and people will stop dying. And in the Med, tragically, uh, I believe it's nearer 2,000 that they think may have died just this year. They have no real idea so many are crossing. But the moment the business model stops, everybody is taken back to the uh, departure point, the beach at which they left, then this thing stops within a matter of weeks. And interesting, isn't it, that uh, the, the, apparently the Albanian drug gangs have found an even newer route 
to come. According to a piece um, in the Telegraph there today, or maybe yesterday, um, they've decided they can come via Santander as well now. And no surprise there. I didn't believe a word of it when the government was sort of pontificating with great spin and, and joy that they'd stopped the Albanians coming. They obviously just found another route. It now looks as though that seems to be the one because, uh, because they are essentially they're the foot soldiers of the, the drugs gangs, the criminal gangs, uh, in order to come and act as runners or to come and uh, basically look after the barbers' shops, the car washes, to help launder the vast hundreds of millions of illegal profits. The numbers here, at every level in terms of money, are off the scale. Mm. I mean, they are, if not hundreds of millions, the profits are in the billions. And it's us, the British taxpayer, that is suffering, that is paying. And I think the numbers are so great that this is part of the reason why, frankly, our finances are so bad, part of the reason why there's no real wage growth. And so many people are saying that it's unfair. What's the point of me uh, stressing and striving and working hard when these people are all on the make and the take and I'm the mug paying for it? Yeah. Absolutely right. Norman says this. How long before the RNLI actually sailed to the French beaches to collect the economic migrants, the bleeding art do-gooders need to be put in their place now? Well, I think that's how an awful lot of people feel. Um, I can't let you go, though, Richard, without your uh, comments this morning on the, uh, the net zero referendum, uh, because, of course, uh, that's now something that's growing uh, in popularity as an idea. Uh, they're doing a referendum in Poland on, on migration and immigrants. Uh, can we have a, a referendum on net zero? Well, once again, Mike, you see, I don't follow fashion, I lead it, because Nigel and I proposed this referendum back in March 2022 right. uh, and received such uproar that we couldn't even find, the venues weren't, weren't allowed to host for us to, uh, to hold rallies. Uh, I know that that's uh, one of the reasons why I've, I've had some banking issues, because yeah. of my views on net zero. Yeah, I'd love a referendum on net zero. We'd win it hands down, we'd win it 70-30. But the truth is, the establishment... The last thing they want, and the eco-zealots and cultists, the last thing they want is to put it to the people because when they do that, they seem to find with the referendums that the people don't do what they say, Mike. <laughs> the people act with their common sense, with their gut instinct, and they vote with their feet and with their wallet. Well, the people support what you and I say, Richard, because we speak common sense. You know, the sort of the Westminster bubble brigade uh, wouldn't know common sense if they fell over it. <laughs> They wouldn't. They absolutely wouldn't. That's the reality. So, look, I'd love a referendum on it. I'd get well stuck in, but I don't think the establishment will grant it. But what I have declared, and I think many people recognise, we are at the point of peak net zero. Yeah. And it's now acceptable. It's just about OK to challenge it. We've been leading the way on that and we've got some scars on the back, but we will keep banging the drum. This is it's the greatest self-inflicted financial harm and madness that's sending our jobs and our cash, hard-earned wealth overseas. And actually, it's not saving any uh, emissions at all. In fact, it's creating more CO2 emissions. The more shale gas we buy from America, for heaven's sake, we create three or four times the yeah. CO2. I know. It's absolutely crazy. Absolutely ridiculous. Listen, enjoy the uh, the, the summer climbs of uh, the south coast. Uh, enjoy the sea. Enjoy the channel. Uh, Richard Tice, straight from the sea there, uh, looks absolutely just as good as ever, uh, working his very hardest for the people of this country. Of course he is, because he does talk sense. He does think net zero is a crock of nonsense, and he wants the boats to stop. Don't we all? This is Talk TV. Nationwide, by your side, talk radio and talk TV. Uh,
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. This is, of course, Talk TV, the place to be for common sense. At the home of it, in many cases, some would say. I'm delighted to say Laura Dodsworth is here, returned from a trip abroad. We don't have to give away where. But you're looking um, very healthy and, and happy and, you know, generally... Um, Good, I would say. Glowing. Glowing, yes. We can yes. go with glowing if you like. Glowing. Well, that because I escaped a week of British weather. Yes. So. Although, you know, I must say, I came in today and came out of the house, thought, ah, this is all right. Sun, a lot of sun's shining. Mm. I don't mind it cool. I don't really want to be lying in bed wondering if I'm going to be able to go to sleep because it's too hot. I know. It feels like we've had grey, rainy weather for about a the month. The weekend though, wasn't very nice. It's been a bit much, no, hasn't it? That is true. And we do talk about the weather a lot here because we were sort of obsessed with it. But it's always been like we've that. We've got these big windows, you know, that, yeah. that draws, draws to attention. But I mean, of course, you're talking about the weather because the weather's put in front of us in the mm. news, on TV, yes. in, in the media. 24 7 yeah. we're supposed to be in a permanent state of hyper vigilance and anxiety yeah. panic even yeah. about global warming yeah. it's, and, and of course they have to try extra hard because the weather here is so dull and yeah. i mean all these you know all these sort of climate nutters who are going on about maui now who've never previously never heard of maui never been anywhere near it doesn't know don't, couldn't tell you where it is on a map couldn't tell you what all the other islands in the hawaiian island archipelago are couldn't tell you even whether you know, Dano was a real character in Hawaii Five O. You know, but suddenly now they're all experts on Maui and the way that it was constructed and the way that it was uh, colonised and the way that it was taken over by sugar plantation horrible people and it's their fault. So they're not even blaming global warming or global boiling anymore. They're now blaming colonialism, which is of yeah. course all the rage today, isn't it? Um, it is. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned colonialism. Actually, I mean, we could go on about the weather for ages, but you and I have done that before. <laughs> almost yeah, but I very ceaselessly. cleverly linked us into the next because section. You, yes, you know, I you want see. to talk to you about colonialism, gender, and yeah. the NHS. But the way that this word keeps creeping its way into so many stories is everything that you need you need to know mm. about this movement. Now, I say movement. This isn't to imply that I think it's controlled by a single entity mm. or that there are puppet masters pulling our strings. I think instead there's a kind of a constellation of interest, but it does inform a movement that has now been in progress mm. for decades. Yes. And it is designed entirely to undermine us, to undermine our self-perception. Um, and our self-worth. So everything is to be pinned on colonialism. The latest story um, was reported in the Mail yeah. this week that various NHS foundation trusts have been found to explain in very unscientific terms that actually a lot of the problems we have with gender now are due to colonialism. Right. Why is that? You're not going to be able to find an adequate answer. <laughs> you normally um, hear stories Sorry for about how the there are question. yeah there are African cultures where they have trans deities or they don't have gender based language. Now that may or may not be true, but of course it's a huge distraction from the fact that what the NHS is doing is rewriting biology textbooks, putting mixed sex wards in, mixed sex toilets, using language which is totally denigratory to women mm. like uterus havers, menstruators, pregnant people. So that's a big distraction, yeah. but let's be distracted just for a moment, shall we? The idea that it's our fault as the British, yes. that our colonialism has mixed up some weird gender-free utopia of a world is plain mm. nonsense. Look at Afghanistan right now. Yeah. I don't see the British there, do you? And they no. banned girls from secondary school. They did. Well, is it's... that our fault? Oh, um, well, probably. let's wait. Let's yeah, wait. Probably. Now, but what about, you know, what about the fact that only apparently Britain was ever involved in colonial activity? 
because these people who are anti-British, in my view, are also pro-European very much, but they don't go on about Belgium or France or Spain or Portugal, who were colonising parts of the world before we ever got anywhere near them. Well, we, we hear a lot, of course, about the um, anti-British strain of anti-colonialism, yeah. but I'm sure it exists in some kind of form throughout Europe because it's a very rampant infection which is supposed to be undermining all kinds of Western cultures, I think. I mean, another example, though, of, of where we didn't get it wrong was it's the British who stamped out the practice of... Hindu widows, widows immolating themselves on their husband's funeral pyres. Look, the fact is that sex is immutable. It's a biological reality, which means you've got two sexes everywhere you go, mm. which means you've got sexism wherever you go, and you've got sex-based violence wherever mm. you go. You can pretend there's this, this magical kind of feeling called gender, of which there are infinite varieties, but it will never undo the fact there are two sexes. Yes. So I think these NHS Foundation Trusts are rightly being called out on some absolutely diabolically nonsensical anti-scientific yes. policy documents. I've got a new phrase for them. Do you know what it is? Reality mm. deniers. I like that. I've been thinking about that as mm. well, that it's kind of worth turning the, the language yeah, around. Yeah, let's turn it back on them because they're always calling people deniers in one, like they yeah. seem to think that's a powerful uh, way of linking everything to the Holocaust, right? So why don't we use that word, deniers, because they're denying reality. And it's a bit like the what, the term anti-hate. Yeah. You know, people um, adopt that as though then if you question anything, you must be pro-hate. Yeah. So it's to create this false dichotomy mm. in this polarisational term. Mm. So sure, let's switch around. It, because essentially it is re reality denial. I was gobsmacked to see that there are NHS trusts that describe that sex is assigned at birth by a medical practitioner mm. based upon observable characteristics. Now, let's just call this what it is. Basically, a doctor sees either a penis or a vulva and knows that the baby's a boy or a girl. Yeah. They know they're a boy or a girl. They're not, signs, they're not assigning sex. No. This language is deliberately designed to obscure reality, to confuse you, to bamboozle you. Now, you have to be super wary of any movement, and this is a movement, that tries to bamboozle you and confuse you mm. because it's a hallmark of horrible regimes forever. Yes. They break you down to build you up. So from now on... I think we have to call time on it. I've lost all patience with it myself. We have to call time on it. And it's actually the duty of everybody, not just to kind of nod politely mm. in the corner, but to speak up. This is why there's a chapter in my new book called Be the First to Speak Up. Yeah. You know, we talk about free speech a lot, and yet so many people don't exercise it when it's important. Yeah. We've got to stop going along with the, no, I meet people these ludicrous on, ideas. I would say a weekly basis, not necessarily a daily basis, who say, oh, well, I don't really feel I can talk about that. And you go, well, why not? Well, I just don't think I should have a view on that. And that's what the, 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 the sort of the anti-free speech people want, don't they? They want to scare people into not speaking. They want to scare you into not having an opinion or having an opinion that the only they should agree with. I actually mm. had a conversation with somebody on, I know it's ridiculous, on social media, Twitter, as I'm still calling it, even though some people are saying it's not that anymore, um, who actually said that, you know, some opinions are wrong and uh, indefensible. Well, really? Well, who's going to decide what they are and who says that any opinion is wrong? Because surely an opinion is just that. It's an opinion. Mm. You well, can make a judgment about something. You can get your facts wrong, but you can't get your opinions wrong, can mm. you? Well, we don't think of ourselves as living under a tyranny, but in many ways we are living in quite a tyrannical world mm. where there are certain people who are, certain people set themselves up as... Oh, I'm sorry. You said that word. It's the tyrannical <laughs> alarm. <laughs> the guard, they set themselves up as the, the guardians of yeah. um, virtue right. and morality But yeah, we haven't speech. appointed them. We haven't asked them to be the guardians. We haven't asked them to represent us. Mm. There has been no election 
A referendum. I mean, like, forget about the gender madness in the NHS, which is now, you know, it's, it's very widely reported. Very much I think, so. I think we have to tackle more this idea about everything, to, everything colonial being bad. Yes. Look, to say that everything the British Empire did is bad is as plainly ludicrous mm. as trying to whitewash yeah. all of the crimes of the empire. Right. You know, you have to take a nuanced view of history. Yeah. There are good things, there are bad things. Um, Singapore seems quite well off yeah. uh, for it. Zimbabwe doesn't. Um, but to blame everything that we perceive as wrong in the world, whether right. it's climate change or some crazy idea that we don't need single-sex wards in hospitals on colonialism, yeah. is madness. And that is latched onto, this idea of colonialism is latched onto to undermine you, yes. the individual, but also your communities and your nation, yeah. to make you feel not just not proud of yourself right. and your nations, but to make you feel ashamed. Mm. And that is no way forward for a country to feel ashamed of itself. So we have to call time on that as well. You can take a nuanced view of both the advantages and disadvantages of our history, mm. but we shouldn't be going forward into our future feeling ashamed of ourselves. No. It's an insidious movement. And also ignorance of anything is never good. And the kind of whitewashing of something because you don't like it is also not good. You mm. know, there were plenty of things that were terrible going on in many of these countries that were colonised before anybody ever colonised them. Yeah. You know, the caste system in India, you know, let's see you stand up and make a case for that if you're so anti-British, right? Because mm. the caste system was responsible for the most horrific things in the same way that the Mayans who were killed off by Cortes, supposedly, because he gave them all syphilis, um, you know, used to sacrifice virgins, throw them into a pit of water and take them up a pyramid and stab them and take their heart out and hold it up like that. You know, brilliant. Very good. Well, we should have left them to do that. So when you went to Cancun for your summer holidays, you know, you stand... Well, obviously not you. Some people run the risk of being, you know, uh, sacrificed. Well, maybe this is a problem with climate today, Mike. We're not, not, not sacrificing enough people to the climate gods. Maybe <laughs> that's where it went that. wrong. There was a great video that I saw. I thought of you, actually. Uh, I don't know where, why it was, it was Oh, out here there, we go. It was a New York Times <laughs> journalist um, on some trip. It, presumably it had some political connection, but it was a, a farm, dairy farm in the Midwest somewhere. And the woman, who's the dairy farmer, said to the New York Times, you didn't see the question, but said to the New York Times uh, reporter, well, maybe uh, what you should do is come over here and try and milk the cow. And then after that, go over there and milk the bull and see how you get on. There the we point, go. The point was very clearly made. Well, and of the course. New York Times reporter shrugged her shoulders. Because what can you say? It's all just a big, massive yeah. pretense. Like I say, we've, got, we've really got to call time on it. And I think it's more important than just standing up for the truth and feeling good about ourselves' nature. Mm. I think it's actually much more important than that. It's back in 2016, Camille Paglia warned at the Battle of Ideas Festival that actually our culture's obsession with transgen transgenderism yeah. foretells the decline of civilization. Mm. According to her, she said that a hallmark of civilizational collapse throughout history over and over again is the rise of androgyny. Yeah. It's a similar story to the one told by J.D. Unwin in his book Sex and Culture, which we reference in our one of our more controversial chapters of the book, Free Your Mind. Um, his book was called Sex and Culture, and, and he said that there are various markers of civilizational decline to do with you know sexual depravity or giving up on pre-marital chastity. Mm. Now, this may sound very old-fashioned to some people, but if he's right, we're in the throes of civilizational mm. decline now. I think there's no but, question, I say this a lot, that there's nothing so much as, as, as the kind of decline of, of values and decline of tradition. Uh, which heralds that because in the end people have got less and less to worry about they're more and more secure they're more and more well off despite what we hear from you know doctors on 120,000 a year who can't afford to buy their lunch you know people are much better off now in the western world than they've ever been and probably in the rest of the world as well and yet they want to change everything because they 
not unhappy enough. I know. Has a culture ever had such a useless grip on the truth? No. And I tell you what, this puts me off the NHS even more. Yeah. Because, you know, we think of it as our, our national religion in mm. some ways. Well, this is a religion I, I just don't think I can, I can worship at its altar anymore. Right. You know, I don't want to see doctors or nurses who don't think sex is real. Right. I don't want to see doctors and nurses who think that the idea that single-sex wards are anything to do with colonialism. Right. They've lost their grip mm. on reality. I mean, I have an elderly relative who's really worried about going to hospital yeah, and sure. finding herself on a ward where there are men. Yeah, well, we you saw know, this a statistic is becoming this something morning. that's making people and some of not the men, want to see their doctor. And some of the men who are allowed onto female-only wards are only identifying as female occasionally, not even, you know, all the time. So I don't do even know which ask. is worse, Mike. Well, I don't, do I don't even know which is worse. in that case. Let's talk about uh, another f part of the NHS, which is in the news today, and this weight loss jab. Oh, my goodness. Because lots of people are going, oh, this is great, isn't it? And I'm not so sure it is. You know? I, my, my instinct is always with these things, you know, you have to ask qui bono. Mm. Well, you think, well, you know, the, the people who want to lose weight will benefit because here's a magic jab. They can jab their way to For thinness. those who don't know what qui bono is, that means who benefits. Who benefits. Um, I look at it and I think, you too, oh, it's, it's another miracle cure from pharmaceutical. Oh, so I've just called sorry. somebody there. Sorry. I'm on my own little rant here, it's missing right. your brilliant jokes. Sorry. I'm sorry, Mike. Um, it, I, I look at this and I think who benefits? Well, probably a pharmaceutical yeah, company probably. selling us some kind of you inordinate. The problem is, by the time you give people a jab for being obese, it's too late. Yeah. Really, we need to go back to the beginning of the problem, which is early in life. But we need to go back earlier than that. Why have we become the fat man of Europe mm. in the last 30 to 40 years? Mm. You know, we never used to be. No. And so lots, it's going to be complex and be multifactorial. There are lots of theories as to why two thirds of this country is now over, mm. overweight and obese. Yeah. That's quite I'm sorry to say, it's quite shameful yeah. to be um, I would say so. to be so obese. It's it's not a good it's it's not a good look mm. in all senses of the word. So where did it come from? You know, obesity is very much tied to poverty. So we can't ignore the fact that there's something about the economic environment which makes it harder for um, people from lower socioeconomic classes to eat well. But, you know, government health advice, dietary advice also changed at the time we started yeah. getting fatter. You know, it went away from a traditional diet and into this kind of high carbohydrate, high fibre diet, eat five a day. There's a really good book on this called The Obesity Epidemic by Dr. Zoe Harkum. It's considered by some to be quite controversial, but it's it's fascinating, you know, when you read it and, and you learn that some things were totally not based on any evidence, like five a day. Mm. I mean, sure, eat your fruit and veg. I'm not saying people shouldn't, but it's not based on any evidence. No. I don't think there's any evidence. They just do you know think which, it's good for you. Do you know which food is the richest in vitamin C? I don't know. I would imagine oranges because that's what they kind of Liver. try to tell you. Liver. liver. We get a lot of misinformation right. about food. So, I mean, I recently like a, there was, like um, there was a, a study that's just come out published by Harvard University among 10,000 people with type 2 diabetes. And when they ate a low carbohydrate mm. diet, they were 24% less likely to die early from any, any cause. Right. I think that's the result of it. I'm going to tweet this okay. afterwards. Um, so, you know, there are some doctors now in this UK who are putting people forward for low carb diets, which is something that the Public Health Collaboration Charity suggests. You uh -huh. know, is it in fact her whole approach to eating that's wrong? We're eating a lot of ultra processed foods.
I think we are. When I was a kid, here we go, I've just come back from holiday. Now, mm. when I was a kid, when we went away, when we went on a day trip, we took sandwiches and cling film and a little a little carton yeah. of juice each. Yeah. I'm not saying that was the healthiest thing to eat, but nowadays, of course, people just don't think anything you of going into a, a supermarket and buying a meal deal yeah, or a right. Burger King. So we're eating a lot of processed mm. food, junk food. And actually, the natural human diet is more... It's more animal products. Isn't it also, you know, though, meat, that fish, people eggs, have, yeah, but fruits, you're also, vegetables. You're also now less likely to be told, you know, that there's a problem being fat. You're more likely to be told that you should be proud of your body, no matter what shape it is, and no matter how fat you are, no matter how skinny yeah. you are. So there's no kind of stigma anymore to being big or to being obese, and so people don't care. I mean, it is definitely becoming normalised, and yet I think there are people that will jump at this opportunity mm. to have the jab. Everything about it, for me, feels... Um, like a contraindication to health, though. I, I gather you can get the jab without seeing your doctor if you have the NHS Apparently app. Apparently so. No, I don't have the NHS app. I don't no. use apps to run my life on no. my phone at all. I try to use my phone as little as possible, despite it ringing while I was on air with you. But mm. I use it for phone calls, yeah. texts and phone communication. Calls. I don't even have banking apps on my phone. So I don't have the NHS app. Right. So the idea that the way to health is to have a smartphone with an app and get an injection feels like it's fundamentally mm. wrong. Yeah. I think we need to turn our idea of what healthy living also, is upside down. Also, we don't even know down. yet if it's, if it's got a long-term benefit, this thing, or not, you know? There are people I'm seeing, and I no, I wrote no reason to disbelieve them, saying that they know people who have taken the jab. It's basically an appetite suppressant. And so when you're on it, you don't feel like eating. But when you stop taking it, then you go back to where you were. So it's supposed to train you into eating less. But if the reason you eat more than you should is because you can't help it, or because you've got some psychological you know, relationship with food, then the jab isn't going to help you. Well, I'm... I'm innately sceptical because everything this government does to tackle obesity fails. You know, there are some people who are um, just technocratic tinkerers at yeah. heart and they just want to control everything. Mm. You know, um, tax sugar. Yeah. Well, if that was working, we wouldn't still be getting fatter. Right. Oh, tax junk food. Well, yeah. if that worked, we wouldn't still be getting fatter. Right. You know what? Bring back home economics at school. My kids didn't really learn how to make proper food mm. at school. Do that. But people did people just need to be taught again. You, you have no, to make food. But I didn't learn how to make food at school, but I learned how to make food when I left school. You know, what's wrong mm. with that? How difficult is didn't that? You My learn, parents... Didn't you have home economics? No. Did you go to a boys' school? Yeah. Okay. Of course we didn't. We didn't even have biology <laughs> lessons in my school because it was Catholic boys' grammar school. And right. I'm pretty sure they thought if we tell them that it's biological, they won't believe in God. So I don't, they didn't tell us any of that. But I managed to do okay. You know, managed to father four children, managed to become quite a good cook. Guess what? I learned how to do all that stuff after I left school. Mm. You know, maybe we should have a jam for people who are stupid. I don't eh? think that I don't think that would work either. What we need for that, um, just like you need good food for good health and a good weight, you need good books for a good mind. It's 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 pretty simple. It's just that people don't want to do the hard, they don't want to take the harder route. They want the easy route. Mm. But part of this easy route, which you could also call lazy, as part of the problem. It's almost like now. Don't get me wrong. I've got a lot of sympathy for people who are obese and struggling to lose weight. But it's almost like a lazy solution, and which isn't. It's not. It's not. Yeah. It's not well, going to. It. It's not going to fix the live, underlying yeah, problem. What are you going to do? World. Let kids get really fat until they're right. old enough to qualify for an injection. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. We have to go back to the beginning of the problem. But this is it. Now we live in a world where. Oh, sorry, I can't get to Dubai. But look, here's a pair of um, you know uh, high vis glasses that you can wear, uh, and basically you give virtual reality trip to Dubai. It's not. It doesn't work. Uh, we've got a clip for you though, which we want to play. Um, and it's the woman who is about to be in the new Snow White film ah, describing Snow Woke. why Snow Woke is no more. 
I, I mean, you know, the, the original cartoon came out in 1937, yeah. and very evidently so. <laughs> um, there is a big focus on her love story um, with a guy who literally stalks her. <laughs> yeah. Weird. Super weird. Super weird. So we didn't do that this time. <laughs> so, no, so no prince or a different kind of prince? We have a different approach to what I'm sure a lot of people will assume is a love story just because, like, we cast a guy in the movie. Right. Andrew Burnap. Great dude. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's one of those things that I think everyone's going to have their assumptions about what it's actually going to be, but uh, it's really not about the love story at all, which is really, really wonderful. And whether or not she finds love along the way is anybody's guess until 2024. Um, all of Andrew's scenes could get cut. Who knows? It's Hollywood, baby. Rachel Zegler. Wow. Apparently Snow White is not a love story, um, and the prince is a stalker, and he may actually have all of his scenes cut from the film. Um, is the new version of Snow Woke. Brilliant. Wow, I mean, she displayed such breathtaking humility. She's I know. Not, she's not going to be at all embarrassed about that in the future, is she? Uh, I it think is, she might make it up to Plank of the Week. I, I mean, this is something I really don't like, and it's the remaking of stories which have existed yeah. in one form make or another for story. hundreds or thousands right? of years. Yeah. So they, um, you know, um, what's his name? Is it Peter Dinklage from Game of Thrones? Yeah, I don't know. He, he took offence to the dwarfs being... You said, you know, you, you, you've made a Hispanic Snow White, congratulations, but the dwarves are still short, so now they're not even going to be dwarves anymore. I mean, oh, they're, they're turning the, yeah, everything the upside Snow down. White and the seven dwarves, it's not so about not love dwarves. anymore. Now, I will say that fairy tales do contain some very dark messages. Another yeah. thing that she said about Snow White was that she found it very scary when mm. she watched it as a child. I agree. It's, it's meant the to be scariest scary. film it I scary. ever saw yeah, when I was but young. It's meant to be. But it's meant to be. Fairy tales are frightening, yeah. and they do contain some dark messages, but these speak to very deep archetypes that live in our unconscious you can mess with it if you want you're not going to make a great story Snow White has existed in one form or another for hundreds of years like all the fairy tales do and there is this kind of semi-disturbing theme that exists within them that women are asleep until they're kissed and woken up by a prince yeah it's got some dark aspects to it but it's also an enduring love story. But and why to do pretend, have to, but to pretend that it shouldn't be about love is a really weird message no, to give sorry. people. Why do people have to assume it's about all women? It's about Snow White, one woman. It's not a message for all women that you can only be awoken by, by a prince with a kiss, is it? No, of course, because it's also a message for men that they can be strong, heroic and save people. I mean, the prince is getting a really rough time mm. with this. Oh, all his scenes might be cut. Right. Oh, men, you're so superfluous. It's yeah. like Barbie all over again. Yeah. It's a very consistent theme at the moment in and as a mother of sons, I don't really welcome it at all. Women and men can be different. They have a lot in common. They're complementary. And they're both to be accepted, welcomed and celebrated. Mm. I think the answer to all of this is that if you want to make a story about a woman without a prince in it who saves her, make your own story. <laughs> and no dwarfs. Leave the story. Yeah, and it's no not dwarfs. Snow White Snow anymore. Snow White's not really for you. You know, make your own story. Write your own story. You know, sing the theme tune, write the theme tune, do all that and then produce it and put it out there. But don't ruin a perfectly good story, which has already been successfully produced and written and, and, and performed many times over. Do you remember, though, that when um, the sensitivity readers came for the Roald Dahl books, yes. and I said, well, wait wait till they find the fairy tales, wait till they get hold of Grimm, mm. the Grimm's fairy tales. This is going to happen over and over. Yeah, you yeah. Know, Hansel and Gretel. Wait for the Cinderella rewrite, Hansel and Gretel, mm. all of them. There was always something the a bit odd about princess. them. Oh, Hansel they won't like Gressel. that. Oh. I like the John Cooper Clark um, the poem. You might not remember John Cooper Clark, but he was the punk poet, and he had a line in one of his poems where he said, "You make life a fairy tale, grim, 
<laughs> it's good. Anyway, uh, there we are. Laura Dodsworth, thank you very much. We haven't had a chance to get onto the uh, gender neutral toilets. We'll do that next time. Okay. Um, nice to have you back. Lovely and, to be um, back. We'll see. Well, we'll look out for your tweet as well uh, coming out after the show. We'll take some calls coming up next. We're also going to talk about um, net zero. And uh, we're going to have Joe Walsh, not the bloke from the Eagles. This is a guy who takes exception to me uh, sometimes arguing with him about Donald Trump. Coming up in the next hour, this is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. The one place to get the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And you know me, I will always be fair to all incumbents, uh, whether they agree with me or whether they do not agree with me. Now, I had a very interesting conversation um, a couple of weeks back, the last time Donald Trump was indicted, um, with a man by the name of Joe Walsh, former congressman and presidential candidate. He's a fine man. Uh, we had a good row. Uh, we having, uh, we, we've had sort of words ever since then. But just to remind you of what happened the last time uh, we were on Piers Morgan Uncensored, here it is. You're telling me I'm holier than thou? You are. This guy tried to end our damn democracy. Well, he didn't, though, did he? Yeah, yeah, he didn't do it. Me off. Why don't and you move on and just get over it, Joe? Get over it. Get over it. The man is going to be the Republican Party nominee, and he has a yeah. shot. And, and you're helping him. And, and you're helping him. This country. But you're don't helping him, you Joe. You're helping him back to the White House. You're helping him back to the White House with your holier-than-thou attitude. It's ridiculous. In American history, who else has done this? Nobody else has done it to anybody else either, because Trump is your... Do you think about Trump when you go to sleep at night? Do you have nightmares about him? You know, move on, man. Mr. Joe Walsh. Listen, I appreciate you coming back on, Joe. Uh, Nice to see you. How are you doing? Hey, Michael, I'm well. By the way, we had a row (laughs) because I lost my top. You stayed cool, and I appreciated that. Yeah, listen, there's nothing wrong with it. The thing I love about talking to guys like you is that you're passionate about it, and I have no problem with you, Lizzie. You were kind enough to apologise to me. Let me tell you, there was no need for an apology. Not necessary. We are both, you know, reasonably grown-up individuals. We can handle it. You know, I get shouted at by people all the time. Yeah. Some of them even live with me, you know, so don't worry. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not a thing. But I wanted to talk to you today, though, because yet another indictment has dropped, and I see that you're just as enthusiastic about it uh, on social media as you were the last time around. Um, I'm going to put it to you, though, this time. Again, we're being told this is the most serious crime that he's committed since the last most serious crime he committed. I think using RICO against a former president, and I know a bit about RICO because I worked in New York City when Rudolph Giuliani was the district attorney for the Southern District, and he kind of invented RICO to get the mafia. And I think it's kind of curious that they're using RICO now, not only against Donald Trump, but against Rudolph Giuliani. It's not necessary, is it? Well, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll find out, Michael. Again, just, just for everybody listening right now, Trump was indicted again. I, I, let's not lose track of the bigger picture. Donald Trump was indicted again because he tried to overturn an American election. We can debate whether what he did was criminal um, and uh, he'll have his day in court. When it comes to RICO, it's, it's clear what she's trying to do is prove that Trump led a criminal enterprise. I mean, 141 specific potential acts of racketeering activity, 18, 19 people all in on it together trying to overturn Georgia's election results. That's a big deal. I don't know if the RICO will work. We'll see. But it's an unusual move, it seems to me, 
from another politically inspired, you know, uh, prosecutor who wants to see their name in lights, a little bit like the guy in Washington, similar to the guy in New York, similar to the people in Florida. It's all creating a pattern. And you've uh, you've acknowledged already that yet even more popularity will come Donald Trump's way as a result of this particular uh, prosecution, right? Oh, I think Trump, Michael, was going to be the nominee before all these indictments. I've always thought Trump's going to be the nominee. This is Donald Trump's party. It's not a party I belong to anymore. It's his party. These indictments have strengthened him. And, and Michael, you talk about another politically you know, inclined prosecutor. My question always is this, though. If a prosecutor has credible evidence that Donald Trump committed crimes, should he be charged? Yes or no? I mean, I think that's the question. Well, many people are arguing, aren't they, at the moment, as to whether or not politics has completely poisoned the well of justice in the United States of America. And you asked me a question the last time we were on when you said, you know, who else has done this as president? Well, I would ask you a question, you know, which prosecutor in American history has ever used a RICO statute to go after a politician? Uh, I'll answer that this way. None. No, this is a first. So it's unprecedented. uh, Well, sure it is, Michael, but it was unprecedented for Trump to be indicted a week or two ago by Jack Smith federally trying to overturn an election. It's unprecedented, Michael, because in the country, in the history of this country, we've never, ever, ever, ever had a president try to halt the peaceful transfer of power. And I would argue then try to lead an effort to violently overturn an election. So, yeah, man, we're in uncharted yeah. territory. Except the problem for your argument is that he didn't stop the peaceful transition of power because the peaceful transition of power happened on time, uh, I, on, on, on demand, and when it was supposed to. And there was no delay to Joe Biden taking over the, the reins of the, said, of, of the presidency. Michael, a, a, Agreed. I said he tried to. He tried to halt the peaceful transfer of power. We've never had a president in our history. But he didn't try very hard. Tried, who tried to. Michael, if you try to rob a bank but you're not successful, that's still a crime. Right. So would you say that anybody who tried to overturn the result of an election has committed a crime? Well, over a thousand individuals so far, and it'll probably hit 2000, have already been charged for what they did on January 6th, trying to overturn an election. Yes. So well, those, individuals but those, have but those are people presumably you're referring to who were arrested as a result of what happened on Capitol Hill. Well, they're not trying yes. to over. No, they were not charged with trying to overturn an election. Uh, they were Most charged. Were, they were charged were. surely were. with public order offences and with causing a riot. Uh, almost all of them were charged as well with obstructing an official proceeding, the certification of the election result. The vast majority were charged with that as well. Yes, but, but, but the, the proceeding was the proceeding in, in the Capitol building that day, not the actual election, surely. No, but that proceeding certified the election yes, result. Yes, yes, but what I'm saying the is they were Michael, well, to all right. try to stop that. Okay, well, let me read you something I have here in front of me. Um, and it's deadline is headlined Washington, D.C., datelined 18th of December 2019. It says this, a news story. Today, Democrats in the House of Representatives voted to overturn the results of the 2016 election. Congressman Biggs voted against this vindictive partisan sham and issued the following statement. 
Democrats have pursued a predetermined outcome for three years and today voted to overturn the will of the 63 million Americans who voted for Donald J. Trump. This is a dark day for the United States of America. Why have all those um, Democrats in the House of Representatives not been charged with some kind of RICO statute for trying to overturn the result of the 2016 election? Well, Michael, if you want to go down that route, then you should charge a majority of House Republicans who all voted not to certify the election. There were, in 2017, there were a handful of Democrats who refused to certify the election. Uh, we had a majority, a large majority of House Republicans in 2020 who voted not to certify the election. Right. So if you want to charge all those people with, you know, trying to I stop don't want to the charge election, anyone. Then no, go ahead and do but it. this is the point. This is your argument. You say you want to charge people who wanted to overturn the result of the election. So there's now a load of Democrats that you want to charge and there's a load of Republicans that you want to charge. You might as well just charge everybody. Why don't you just get on with the business of running the country and stop trying to prosecute people because you don't agree with their politics? Well, no, Michael, again, maybe there are some people doing that. I'm not on a horse trying to go after Donald Trump because I disagree with his politics. I, I love going at it with you, but I think what he did was wrong. We'll find out, man, if, if it's a crime. We'll find out. He'll have his day in court to defend himself. But at, at best... My you gosh, said that. That's what you said to me last time. But that's what you said last time. We'll find out in court. He'll have his day in court. But he keeps getting he more and more court dates. And, you know, nobody seems to be quite sure why. Because surely this is just now a vendetta brought by people who are against Donald Trump. They can't stand him. They want to try and but, stop him getting back into but, the White House. And as you say, they're failing because with every single but, step that they take, he gets a step closer. But, Michael, I guess the question is, if there's credible evidence that he committed crimes, should he be charged, yes or no? Well, I don't know if there is credible evidence that he committed crimes. No, hold crimes. on, hold on, I don't, hold on. I tell you what, I, I tell you I what, asked you, asked, you, yeah, you asked me that question before. I haven't believe, I haven't been led to believe that there is credible evidence that he committed crimes. That's, that's not what I asked. That's not what I asked, my friend. I said, if you thought there was credible evidence should he be charged? Yes if he or no? was, if there was credible evidence shown to me that he had committed a crime, well, of course, because that would mean that there would okay. be a reason to charge him. But so far, I haven't seen one. And all I've seen so far is a lot of people who don't like Donald Trump waving a lot of uh, banners in the air and claiming that they're going to be the ones to take him down. And that's what they want to do. But unfortunately for them, it's a vanity project. And I think using RICO, which was invented by Rudolph Giuliani, to charge Rudolph Giuliani. <laughs> you know, I happen to think that Gi Rudolph Giuliani uh, has kind of become a bit of a laughing stock figure. However, when he was the Southern District attorney in the United States District uh, of the south of New York City. He was a hero to an awful lot of people because he took the mafia down, he put John Gotti behind bars, he arrested Michael Milken, he took the Wall Street insider traders down, and he did a great job for America and for the world. And for him to be treated like some kind of gangster in oh. a cheap suit, I think is really unbecoming of the justice system of America. Oh, oh. Oh, wait a minute, Michael. I don't disagree with you that about anything that Rudy did way back then in another lifetime. I don't disagree with that. But that doesn't excuse Rudy if he committed crimes now. And well, you if, keep you saying if. 90, if you read this 98 page indictment, there are listed 141 acts of potential racketeering activity, 41 counts, 41 criminal counts. Yeah, in this some indictment. of which some of which involved speeches, right? 
some of which involves lying, no, soliciting no, speaking, justice, to, speaking. asking, but Michael, asking top level justice departments to lie. No. To do that is no. a crime. No. Also, That's a crime. No, but also included in the indictment is instances of Donald Trump making statements which your guy or woman, I should say, uh, now in Georgia, says is some kind of uh, uh, anti-RICO crime. Well, making a speech as a politician and claiming something that isn't true, you better build a lot of prisons because there's a lot of lies being told by an awful lot oh, of politicians. Mike, and they're always happening. Michael, it's, Michael, it's well beyond that. It's, it's, it's not. Li- it, again, it's lying in, in court filings. It's filing fake electors. It's pressure. It's threatening and intimidating election workers down in Fulton County. Right. This was all well, part of, she makes the case, it was all part of a conspiracy. Yeah. Well, I'll ask you the same question I asked you last time. Why has it taken two and a half years for this case to be brought? Could it just be the coincidence that Donald Trump's running for president again? No, no. I, no. I think. No, look, of course not. I think. I think Jack Smith last week and Fannie Willis this week, if they could have brought this earlier, they would have. They wanted to make well, why sure didn't they, they did this right. Why didn't they? Huh? Why didn't they? It, it, Michael, this takes some time. I wish it hadn't taken so that's much time. That's not true. You know that's not true. it takes some time. No, you know that's not true because in, in Smith's case in D.C., he said they didn't want to bring the case right after the case of the riots in uh, Capitol Hill because they didn't wish to wind anybody up any further. They didn't wish to create a revolutionary oh, kind of Michael? temperature. Yes, they did. You, they didn't want to bring you, those. They didn't want to bring charges against Donald Trump in 2021, uh, did they? Because they felt that it would be dangerous. That's what they said. Michael Bull, how could you bring a case against Donald Trump right after January 6th without any investigation? Because well, they mean, didn't know. Oh, oh, sorry, time, I thought they had all it? this. No, sorry, all of the things that he did... He did before. No, 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 he no, did before no. that. My God. Most no, of the things a... that he did, he did before that. Michael, it took a January 6th committee. It took the Justice Department looking into it. It took the appointment of a special counsel and then the special counsel doing that work. It takes some time. Look, I think Trump should have been thrown into the slammer the day after January 6th. But that's not very American. And that's just me. But yeah, it takes but, time. But, you know, they've tried to impeach him. They failed. They've tried to, you know, have him locked up. They failed. They've had an election which they won. That doesn't make them happy. They now still want to bury him somewhere in in the ground and make sure that there's a big stone over him so he doesn't come back from the dead. I mean, it's pathetic, isn't it? Come on. As I said to you before, I think it's time to move on and it's time to just forget about it and let the public make a judgment. If the Americans think, as you do, that he's committed crimes, then surely they won't vote for him. But you know that's not true because most Americans who vote for Trump don't believe he committed crimes. They believe that it's all cooked up by a selection of democratically uh, inveigled prosecutors. They are. Michael, whether you're right or not in this country, it doesn't matter. Michael, you're you're mostly right. It doesn't matter what um, Americans think. The only oh, really? thing that matters. Oh really? Oh really? Is that going to be is that going to be your next election stance? It doesn't matter what Americans think. Joe Walsh. Well, it, yeah. If you stop the clip right there, that would be a pretty poor ass election stunt. It doesn't matter what Americans think when it comes to the rule of law. You go by the facts and the law. It doesn't matter whether most Americans think Trump should be prosecuted enough or not. That doesn't have anything to do with it. You look at the facts in the case. Did he commit crimes, period? End of story. And then again, Michael, I go way beyond the criminal aspect here. I believe he's a traitor. 
he tried to overturn an American election. Michael, did well, so Trump did so did so did so did the House of Representatives. Oh, Democrats, Michael. they've voted for it. They voted the, to Michael, overturn it. Michael, Michael, show me the fake elector schemes. Show me the pressuring Justice Department officials to lie under oath. Come on, Michael. Well, it's here, more than I'm just showing that. you. I'm showing you the Democrats in the House of Representatives on the 18th of I, December I, I 2019 voted to overturn the result of the 2016 election. They did. Well, first of all, first of all, they didn't vote in 2019. That was three years after the election. In 2017, they voted not to certify the election. A handful of Democrats compared to 180 well, isn't that, isn't Republicans that the, in the House. Isn't that, isn't, that on, the same, isn't that the same thing? If you vote to, to overturn the result of an election, isn't that a crime? No, they didn't vote to overturn the election. They voted not to certify the results. I think it's wrong, Michael. But again, uh, uh, t 10 times that number of Republicans in the House in 2020 did the same thing. Yeah, but that's what I, I'm saying. I, I'm not asking to so, charge them. No, you just want to charge Trump because you don't like him. No, that's I the don't. point. Not You've just, just proved Trump. the point. You've proved the point, haven't you? No, that hey, no, because Michael, that's a legal process. As a sitting House of member in Congress, you have a right to vote not to certify an election result. That's not a crime. Right. Okay. Well, listen. I think at least we've made some progress, Joe. Because I'm. I don't think you're holier than now anymore. I think you've seen the light. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, I enjoy you. I think you're good. Listen, fun. I am good. It's true. We can agree on that. But listen, I just think I, you know, the next when's the next indictment? Because we'll get you on for the next one this as well. Is, it. is that it? This is it. Are you this sure? Is it. Just the four. This is it. All right. Well, listen. Um, I delight talking to you, Joe. Joe Walsh, former congressman, presidential candidate, uh, no longer holy than now, but still convinced that Donald Trump is a criminal. But of course, he says he may get off. But what he will do is become even more popular with every charge that they put on him. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.